Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Did you ever get picked on when you were little? You know, third grade, maybe, into middle school, maybe before then in first grade. And was there ever one? I love all the talking that's already happening right now. Wow. Oh, okay, second service, I see you. Uh, did a name come to your mind? Or if I asked you, could you provide for me the name of someone who picked on you when you were little? Could you call that to mind? I, I, I kind of was asking people through this week that question, and every single person could come with a first name and a last name. Like from like kindergarten. Like for us, some of us many years ago. And then, of course, I have this theory where if you can't think of a name, I think you were the bully. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not to call anybody out here, but uh, might be true. I don't know. I don't know. It's church. Inspect yourself, right? You know, just examine yourself. Isn't it interesting how those names stick with us? Isn't it funny how you can't remember your coworker's wife's name, but you can remember that name? <laughs> or you have difficulty recalling certain moments or something, but those moments really stick with you? Yeah. It's because the discouraging words often weigh a lot heavier than the encouraging ones. Someone can tell you, maybe there was someone in your life in the second grade who complimented your outfit every day. Someone who said something nice to you every single day. I don't know if you'd remember their name, right? It's really easy for us to remember those that are difficult. As we grow older and people cross us or betray us or hurt us, it seems that our memory for that kind of thing is really sharp. And that that has been affecting our culture. That has been affecting our culture at large to where we now have this culture that's not just of um, minor disagreement, but one truly of contempt with one another. A week ago in the New York Times, Sunday New York Times, there was an op-ed by Arthur Brooks, who's a sociologist. He's an academic, and he was reporting uh, some some findings uh, of the National Academy of Sciences. And the National Academy of Sciences uh, is bringing up a new kind of theory. And this theory that Brooks was writing about last week is called motive attribution asymmetry. Leave it to the academics to have no poetics in their language. Uh, God bless you who are in academia. Uh, You sometimes need help with the grammar, you know. (laughs) Motive attribution asymmetry. What is that? It's the assumption that your ideology is based in love and comes from a place of benevolence, while your opponent's ideology is based in hate. You assume that your ideology comes from a good place, but you assume that your opponent's uh, ideology is based out of some kind of vitriol. And what Brooks is writing about is saying that, as a sociologist, he's seeing this as a way that will undo our society, that this kind of pitting one another against each other will ruin us. He actually writes this in the New York Times last week. People often say that our problem in America today is incivility or intolerance. This is incorrect. Motive attribution asymmetry leads to something far worse, contempt. Which is, contempt is a brew of anger and disgust. Now listen to this. And not just contempt for other people's ideas, but also for other people. Contempt is the unsullied or the pure conviction of the worthlessness of another. 
Brooks is saying he's seeing this. And in fact, the National Academy of Sciences, which studied this, says the researchers found the average Republican and Democrat suffer from a level of this motive attribution asymmetry that is comparable to that of the Palestinians and the Israelis. And what Brooks is saying is so long as our country continues down this path, this will be what ruins us. He believes this so much, he's coming out with a book and a couple of, just as a, as a sociologist, he's interested in, in curbing this and pushing this back so that we might thrive as a society. And what he's saying uh, in this new book is, is that the most important thing we can do is love our enemies, which is actually the title of his forthcoming book, of which was excerpted in the last week's New York Times. Yeah, could it be that contempt between people is going to be the thing that brings us down. And what can save us? This command we're inspecting today in Matthew 5, verse 43. If you've got a Bible, we're finishing our uh, series, The Controversial Jesus, in the final section of this sermon on, section of the Sermon on the Mount before we transition into chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, Matthew 5, verse 43. All the more important for us to listen and heed God's word. Powerful teaching from Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This passage that we're looking at today, it ends a section of the Sermon on the Mount a lot of scholars call the antithesis section. This is the section where Jesus has been saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's been kind of pitting one interpretation of Scripture against his interpretation of Scripture. He's been slashing false teaching and revealing true teaching. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And here, we kind of get to the climactic moment. At the end of this uh, little section of the Sermon on the Mount, he's basically going to instruct us in this question. What do you do when someone disobeys the entire Sermon on the Mount up to this point? How do you treat them? Right? Because he's been talking about anger, he's been talking about lust, he's been talking about betrayal, he's been talking about retaliation and violence. And he's saying, okay, if someone disobeys all of my teaching up to this point, how would you treat them? How could you treat them? How do you respond to those who have not done any of what Jesus has asked? Three thoughts to unpack this text this morning. Recognizing our enemies, reimagining our love, and redeeming our identity. First, recognizing our enemies. Jesus uses this term right off the bat. He says, you've heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you should love your enemy. What is an enemy? It might be a dramatic term for you today. Like you're not sitting over coffee discussing your enemies. You don't use those words, right? That's a strong, strong word. Um, And yet in it, there's a real important truth for us. An enemy is kind of seen twofold. The word in Greek is ekthros, and it actually deals with, I love the way one scholar put it, the inner disposition from which hostility arises. You see, an enemy is not someone that you call an enemy. 
An enemy is someone from which there's inner hostility, an inner aversion that you have to this person. It's the place deep in your heart that says, I don't like them, I don't want to be around them, I don't enjoy them, I don't want to treat them with any kind of kindness. That deep place in your heart is where the enemy comes from. And yet, the enemy can also work in reverse, and this is what I mean. While you can have the inner disposition of hostility towards someone and they're your enemy, it also, this word has the generosity to include those who have inner hostility towards us. It's the people in your life that you think everything's fine with. You've done everything you possibly can to show them love, and they still have that inner hostility towards you. You've done everything possible and still they do not like you. You've done everything possible and still they cannot be around you. Yeah, that's the word enemy. We just use different words for it. I can't stand her. He drives me crazy. They're difficult. I can't be around them for too long. These are phrases we kind of loft up and that reveals the enemy that seeks deep in our heart. We look at them and we go, I can't be around them. That's the inner hostility, the inner aversion toward Did my mic just go out? It just went off briefly, didn't it? We're good. When Jesus uses this line, he says this. We all have enemies. In other words, all of us have that inner disposition. You see, while Jesus will tell us to love our enemies, he still names them as such. He still names them enemies. He says, you've heard it said, hate your enemy. I'm saying, love your enemy. He still uses the word. And I think actually a big step in maturity as a Christian or even just as an adult is to admit there are people that you do not naturally have affection for. I think a key point of maturity is to just own it and say, I recognize that I have enemies. When you hear someone say, I love everyone, you're listening to a liar. When you yourself say, I love everyone, you are lying. I wish you weren't. I wish I wasn't. I wish I loved everyone. But do you know what the truth is? The truth is we don't love everyone. Why? Because real harm has been done. Real hurt has occurred in your life and my life. And we have people that for whatever reason, it is difficult to, they are difficult to love. When Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy, you might be saying, where is that in the Old Testament? And the answer is, nowhere. There's nowhere in the Old Testament that tells you to hate your enemy. Do you want to see the original passage Jesus is talking about? Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. End of commandment. And you might go, well, what happened there? How did that, how, how, where did the hate your enemy come from? Notice that in all of these passages in the Controversial Jesus series that we've been doing, notice that Jesus says, you've heard it said, not Scripture says. Okay, really important. He doesn't say, Scripture says this. He says, you've heard it said. Why? Because he's talking about the common misinterpretations of Scripture that are swimming around his culture. So he says, you've heard Bible teachers say this. You've heard it said this or that. And he's talking about the interpretations. Again, as a masterful teacher, Jesus is looking at the Old Testament correctly to say, my teaching was there all along, you just lost it. It's not that, oh, here's the law, disregard the law, here's the new Jesus stuff. No, 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 Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. I came to show you what it really is and to live a life to fulfill such law. 
Jesus is correctly interpreting the Old Testament. So like I said, you'll search far and wide through your Old Testament to find the command to hate your enemy and never find it. Instead, you'll find that loving your enemy is a thread found throughout all of Scripture. In fact, that Leviticus passage I showed you, 1918, is set within the context of how to love people within your community, within Israel. And right after that section in 1918, it's actually a command about loving immigrants and foreigners, people who come to your land who are not of your ethnicity and not of your cultural and religious background. And it says that you should treat those people just like the locals. You should treat them with love and acceptance and affirmation. Not to create an enemy out of that immigrant, but a friend and a neighbor out of that immigrant that was built into God's law. How about this in Proverbs 25, 21, pretty straightforward Old Testament love of enemy stuff. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head. That's kind of an idiom to say, you'll drive him crazy. You know, that's where kind of kill him with kindness comes from. Just be loving and the Lord will reward you. That's also, by the way, quoted in Romans 12, 20, which shows you the scope of biblical theology would say we love our enemies. Exodus 23, 4 and Deuteronomy 22, 1, in the original Old Testament Torah, the first five books of the law, there are stipulations within the law that if your enemy, it's, it calls, uses the word enemy, if your enemy loses an ox, you know how this goes. You've found lost ox here and there. That's basically like losing money because cattle was economic, right? And if you lost the, an ox, if your enemy lost it and it came into your territory, the law of God said you must return that ox back to your enemy. Every other ancient manuscript and law structure we can find always says if a foreigner loses something, it's yours now. But God's word says love your enemy from the very beginning. It tells you instead to Put the ox back, give them back. Hate your enemy is a line you'll never find in the Old Testament. So what happened? Well, over time, religious leaders would add on to Leviticus 19.18 because of some of the social circumstances the Jewish people were going through. A huge debate in Jesus' age, which is, comes up a couple times in the gospel, is the question, who is my neighbor? Who's the person, when God says, love your neighbor, they all say, I know it says it in Leviticus, but who is that? And oftentimes over the, because the Jewish people were a minority that was oppressed by a powerful political regime across hundreds of years and multiple different conquerors, Assyrians, Babylonians, the Roman government at this time, they would say, no, your neighbor is just the person around you and the enemy is someone you're to hate because God has enemies, in the Old Testament, it's very clear that God has enemies, evildoers, wrongdoers, people that uh, subjugate other people and oppress other people. God hates evil and God has enemies. And what the people of Israel would do is they would take texts where people in the Psalms would be expressing their frustration. They'd say things like, what is it? Psalm 97.10. They would say stuff like, God, I hate those who hate you. They would take those texts and twist them to see the oppressive regime, and they would go, you see, we are to hate our enemies, but they missed a key fact. One, God never told them to hate an enemy, instead told them to love the enemy. And secondly, these phrases from the Psalms, Psalm 97, Psalm 119, are some examples. They were people uh, venting their frustration to God. So it was descriptive passages about people um, sharing their frustration with God, not throwing their hatred towards their enemies. Do you see the difference? And so what they would do, though, is they'd take those texts and the social circumstances, and they'd say, we have to not just hate evil, we must hate the evildoer. 
We have to not just hate injustice, but the one who creates it. And so the non-Israelite became an enemy. The pagan became an enemy. Rome became an enemy. And all these enemies, they said, we are to hate them. And it's funny how you look at Jesus' life and how he treated the pagan, the Roman, the non-Israelite, with tremendous grace out of this teaching. You see, God has enemies, but he forbids us to treat them as our own. God has enemies, but he'll take care of it. We have a different role to play. We are not God. We do not bring judgment on people or bring vengeance upon people. Instead, Jesus calls us to something else, to love our enemies. That's our role, which requires us, number two, to reimagine our love. Jesus moves from reinterpreting the Old Testament to this passage Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can I just have you sit in that statement? Because when I teach something like this, I'm very aware of how often it's been quoted. And I'm very aware for some of you who've been around church for a long time, that you might receive just Jesus' word to you and consider it blithe. You might receive it as some kind of casual, yeah, I know he said that. I believe... Meditating on this, studying it this week, love your enemies. This command from Jesus Christ has the power to transform human communities, does it not? It has the power to transform families. Because when I say enemy, when I say someone that's difficult to love, for some of you, it hits very close to home, and by close to home, I mean home. (laughs) And I wonder if we were to just embrace this how it would change us. You know, when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, did you know it's the first time the word love appears in the New Testament? Granted, we're five chapters in, but still. After the prophets, Malachi ends, there's what's called the 400 years of silence where no scripture was written. And suddenly Jesus is born and he comes on the scene, 30 years in, begins teaching, and the very first time love appears in the context of the narrative is in this command. Love your enemies a powerful word across hundreds, thousands of years. There is no mention of the word love in the birth narrative of Jesus. There is no mention of the word love in his early teachings and healing ministry. But by Matthew 5, verse 43 and 44, you get it for the first time. Does this not tell us something about the heart of God? The word you might be familiar with of love is agape. It's a word that is often quoted but misunderstood. As an American, when you think about loving your enemies, I, you and I, we often think that we have to develop affectionate feelings for them. Jesus is not asking you to do that. He's not asking you to like this person. He's not asking you to enjoy this person. He's asking you to agape them, which is very different from the English word love. When I say love, you say, I must develop affectionate feelings for this person or that person. But the word love in the Bible is an active word, something you can do. Last week, Ryan talked about a disciple or a doormat because he was saying, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, it makes you think you might get walked all over like a doormat. It makes you think, man, if I'm rejecting anger, if I'm rejecting lust, if I'm you know, getting hit on the cheek and just turning the other cheek, or someone asks me to carry this, I go the extra mile. All these commands we've been looking at. And Ryan said there's a difference between a disciple and a doormat. God is not asking you to get walked all over. He's asking you to do something. And here we see what we are to do. 
We are to love. We are to agape. We are to do something even, and listen carefully, even in spite of our feelings, which I know for my generation is difficult to understand. (laughs) We almost have no way to compute how we could do something without feeling authentic about it. We constantly say things like, well, that would be insincere, or, well, that would be inauthentic if I'm just doing this but not feeling it. And oftentimes, I see the cry for, inauthent- or for authenticity to trump obedience. What if there is just something you are to do? What if there is just something you are to obey, and that would bring flourishing for your life, and you don't have to wait to feel for it? Maybe in doing it, the feeling comes later? Potentially, this is what Jesus is asking. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But what does love mean? Biblically, again, let's go deeper. 1 John 3.16 is my favorite example of this. By this, this is John writing about love. This is how we know what love is. Some of your translations might say, how do we know what love is? Posing the question. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to do the same for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. The other verse up there is Matthew 5.44, this same text, just in the old King James. And I like the King James because the English enjoyed embellishing things. And so they embellish it with a couple of English words that helps us understand the passage. But I say unto you, Jesus says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. I love these verbs along with the 1 John 3.16 passage because it helps us understand that agape is about doing something, not feeling something. God is not asking you to develop affectionate feelings for your enemies. He's asking you to do something for them. And here lies the ability for us to even get it done. Love your enemies. Look at some of those verbs. Love, bless, do good, pray for. You can do all of those things without feeling like it. I'm going to give you permission to. Anyone, listen, anyone who's been in a long-term loving relationship has done that. Any of you that has had a friend for a long time, you've done that. You've not felt like loving your friend and you've loved them. If you've had a spouse for a long time, you have not felt like loving that spouse and you have chosen to love them by doing specific things that reveal the agape. How do you love an enemy? How do we do something with this? I see three things in there. The first is prayer. And I love in the King James, it talks about blessing those who curse you. Because you know where I'm going with this. How do you pray for an enemy? You don't pray for someone, like in the way that uh, maybe you have traditionally. Oh God, change them. What do we say when we're saying that? We're basically saying, God, make them more like me. I, Lord, your humble servant. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, but we do, I do it. I do it all the time, right? God, change their heart. Make them more like my heart. Just pure before you, O oh God, my salvation. We position ourselves with this posture that's ridiculous. No, Jesus, I love that in the King James, it uses the word bless. What does that mean? Ask for the favor of God in their life. That God would help them flourish. That God would bring them good things. 
That's a lot harder to do. Bless your enemies. The second way is in provision. Jesus says, do good to those who seek harm from you. Giving, this is what provision means. Giving them things they need or want without having asked. You see, when your enemy asks you for something, you'll give it to them. Be kind of mad about it, but you'll do it. You know, oh, they need something. I should be a good Christian, you know. But have you ever given them something? A birthday gift, for example. Provided them with something that they didn't ask for, but that it would be something they need or want. There's a provision. That's a way to love someone without feeling it even. You see, because Jesus knows this. Groups take care of themselves, don't they? Inner groups. That's why he says tax collectors love tax collectors, right? He says, you know, the pagans love the pagans, the Gentiles love the Gentiles. Like, people, groups take care of themselves. So he says, what more are you doing? I mean, if you love people who love you, you're just a normal person. <laughs> That's just being a human being. Like, if somebody just really enjoys your company and laughs at your jokes and you love them, it's like, there's not much special there. Groups take care of themselves. Jesus is asking you to expand your capacity of love to those people who are not like you, who drive you crazy, who are outside of your inner group, and to show them the agape by providing for them things that you may provide a friend. Finally, is sacrifice. Jesus says, love your enemies. And that 1 John 3.16 passage says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid his life down for us. Sacrifice is about giving up something for someone else's benefit without any expected return. You just do something for them, not expecting them to return the favor. It may be a kind word where you know it will not be met with a kind word. It may be an encouragement that you might think might be met with a discouragement back to you. And yet, God is asking you to sacrificially love your enemies. Okay, all three of these things, a good idea, right? Good practice, like you write it down. Oh, these are good churchy ideas. But have you ever tried it? It's nearly impossible. And here's where some of this hits a little bit closer to home for all of you, for some of you, sorry, is this. I know there's people in this church and, and people in this room who have done serious harm to you. And our capacity to do good things to people who have done bad things to us is so limited. And there's some of you that have drawn a boundary line with those people that's healthy, that's good, that is needed. And yet I believe there's something Jesus is still asking us to do. We cannot talk to that person. We cannot like that person, we can keep that firm boundary and still show this love towards them. Still have no ill will towards them. Instead, be praying for them, sacrificing for them, albeit in a boundary and at a distance. Because all of us have a very limited capacity for our enemies. And I realize for some of us in this room, we see this command and the word comes up in our head, impossible. Because we don't have the capacity. We can't do it. We can't love the people that don't love us. It's so difficult. Just do a quick self-check on yourself this week. Notice how you treat people who can give you something. Someone you meet who's ahead of you professionally, who you admire, who has more money than you, who could give you something, give you an opportunity you could not get on your own, and notice, just notice how you treat them. It's very easy for you to remember their name, their story, very easy for you to just enjoy them. 
Now notice the people who can give you nothing. How do you treat them? This is the great sanctifying work of parenthood. Loving those who could not give you much in return. But just notice that and notice the limited capacity of this. How do we expand it? How do we open ourselves up and reimagine love? You notice in these three things, the gospel. The only way to expand the capacity of our love is to be filled with a love so tremendous as in Christ. The one who prayed for us in his death. When he was nailed to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. The cross which provided provision for salvation, something we needed, many of us wanted, could not get for ourselves, and was provided for us without asking. The provision of the cross and the sacrifice of the cross, that Jesus died the death we should have died, that he bore the sin that should be on us, that the condemnation that should sit upon us sat on Christ on the cross. And because of that gospel, and we stare at that gospel reality, we realize our heart begins to change and our capacity to love people begins to expand. The only way it is possible to love an enemy is to trust the one who died for them, to, who died for all of us and paid the price for salvation. But there's a reason I put it in this order. is because it often starts with prayer. Actually, I would say 99% of the time, it's going to start with a prayer. When I was 19 or 20, somewhere in that age range, I was developing a true enemy. He was my best friend for many years, and when I mean best friend, as close as a brother. And through various circumstances in his own life, he betrayed me, and not just once. Time after time, a cycle of manipulation. He lied about me. He stole from me. And my best friend turned into my worst enemy in the matter of a year or two. And I can remember on a Friday night sitting with my wife in a young adult's service up in Portland. And the pastor was preaching on this passage. And as he called for us to begin by praying for our enemies... I couldn't do it. Maybe like you, you find it impossible, unfair. It's an unfair command to be asked to pray for the people that have hurt you, wronged you, and despise you. And I remember him saying he wanted us to pray for our enemies even if through gritted teeth. I remember that phrase. And I began that night to pray through gritted teeth. To just pray, and again, in the biblical blessing, that God would bring life and an abundance of joy to this guy. It was so hard. And I wish I could tell you that from that prayer, things totally turned around. They didn't. They got way worse. It got darker. It got more difficult. My friend did not repent for a long while. And what I realized in Jesus' command here is that when we pray for our enemies, they don't always change, but we always change. What happened? He didn't change, but I began to soften. I began to be humbled. And my righteous position above my friend 
was humbled to a position next to my friend. Because when you pray, you stop viewing people above or below you, and you're above them, but you start viewing them side by side. And suddenly, I began to realize in praying for my enemy, I would look to my left and my right, and there my enemies would be. Right alongside me, beneath what? The cross. Beneath the crucified one, we both sat. Which is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer can write this. Through the gospel, the disciple can now perceive that even his enemy is the object of God's love. And that he stands like himself beneath the cross. What do we look at when we stand beneath the cross in awe? Romans 5 verse 6. This is what we see. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Skip to verse 10. For if while we were, there's our word, while we were enemies, we were being reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Christ died for you while you and I were in a position of his enemy. While you had the inner disposition of hostility and aversion towards God, God showed you great love by taking that sin upon himself and dying on the cross so that you might live, giving you something you did not deserve and you did not ask for, but something you desperately needed. This is what the gospel does. You realize in sight of the cross, that's unfair. That's impossible. And when you see the impossibility becoming possible, you start to see that you can love your enemy. That you can look at your enemy and not maybe like them or have affectionate feelings for them, but understand the importance of your equality before the cross. That there is nothing that separates you from the enemy apart from the cross. The only difference between you and them is the grace that you have received. So show them that grace. Show them that love that you have received. The good news of Jesus Christ, it's not just the teaching to love your enemy, but it is the reality that it has happened. Christ shows for us the extent to which he obeyed this command. That's why he says, rain falls on the just and the unjust in this passage. He says, the sun rises on the evil and the good. Do you know that the cross does as well? You see, rain falls on the lazy farmer's field who mistreats his workers and takes advantage of his profits. And rain also falls on the humble servant of a farmer who loves his workers and treats them well. The sun rises and sets on them both. And so does the cross. And your great realization when you begin to pray for your enemies is your astonishing revelation that you too are an enemy. The astonishing realization at the cross is to say we were enemies with God. And if I was an enemy with God and he forgave me, there's nothing too different between me and the person who has sinned against me in the worst way. See, we naturally assemble a world in our head that places us as the protagonist, constantly seeking good. We're the hero. We like to use the word objective when we talk about ourselves. The best way to keep an enemy, you guys, is to continue to develop the theory that they're different than you. 
Keep spinning the story, reframe the narrative, and continue to convince yourself that the two of you have nothing in common. But beware, when you come to the cross, you will find your differences nullified. And the only thing will remain is your common need for God's grace. The cross levels the playing field. Beneath its majesty and power, beholding, I I would say, its scandal, its impossibility that God would die for you and take your sin, beneath that, you realize the power you can receive from it. It can open your capacity to love even the people that are difficult to love. And it's when we see just how extravagant and impossible this is that our identity begins to appear, which is the final point. There's a redeeming of our identity that happens. There's two strange lines in this you're probably wondering about. Matthew 5.47, when he says, what more are you doing than others, right? Like other people love people that love them, so what more are you doing? The Greek word there for what more is about extraordinary. He's like, Jesus is saying, if you love people who really love you, that's ordinary. That's just called being a human being. Normal human beings can love other human beings. You don't have to be a Christian to love people. But what can give you the power to be an extraordinary person of love? It's in the cross. It's in Jesus. What more are you doing? The standard of love in the cross expands. And that's why verse 48 comes in where you may wonder about that. He says, you must be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect after that. You say, perfect? I thought this wasn't about perfection. Well, it's a difficult word. It's been translated to the best of the ability. But in other places in the New Testament, it's actually translated complete or great maturity or, as one scholar puts it, whole. You must be whole as the Heavenly Father is whole because perfection has an idea of completeness to it, does it not? And Jesus is saying, so long as you learn to love enemies in the same way God, through his cross, has loved you as his enemy... Your identity in Jesus is built. It's seen. It's revealed. It's not that this is an entrance requirement to the gospel. Don't get me wrong. It's that it's a revelation of the gospel working in your life. See, to be a son or daughter of God, which Jesus says earlier, right? He says, you will be sons of the Father if you love your enemies so that you'll be sons of the Father. What is he saying? He's saying your wholeness, your maturity in Christ is completing as you are learning to love your enemies, you're becoming just like your father. You're doing the same thing your father did for you. And that identifies you to the world as someone who is a child of the God of the gospel. That's who you are. That's already been purchased. That's already been given to you. That's already been provided for you. When you love your enemies, you're just showing us that that's true. You're showing it off. You're saying, this is how extravagant God's love is. This is how good God's love is, is that I can even love the people I do not have affectionate feelings for. I can learn to sacrifice and pray for those that harm me because of God's love within me. You see, a complete or whole human being is one that reflects God by delivering a consistent sacrificial love to all of his creation, even the enemies. When you love an enemy, you remind yourself, you just remind yourself of who you already are, a child of God. That's why Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, therefore, be imitators of God. Look at, as beloved children. As you're his child, be the imitator of your dad. And walk in love, how? 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to love in the same way Christ has loved us. There's that phrase in Christianity today, love the sinner and hate the sin. And it's always bothered me because I always hear it used in a way to excuse a kind of hate. I love my friend AJ. He says, God didn't love us in that way. He loved the sinner and forgave the sin. And I wonder what we would be like if we did the same thing. My friend AJ rephrases that phrase this way. Love the sinner, love the sinner. Just leave it at that. Just leave it at that. Because God has loved you and not said, oh, this part of you I don't like, or this. That's what it ends up becoming. And what the gospel says is God has loved the sinner and loved the sinner. What's left here? Only obeying this command is left. And this is kind of where the sermon ends. I'm going to invite Sam up, and he's going to play and I just want to, as your pastor, give you the opportunity to obey this command. I want to give you space to begin to pray. Because look, I could tell you right now, hey, go pray and you'll take the note down and you'll go to lunch and then maybe in a month you'll forget about it or something. Why not take the opportunity now to take a hard step, maybe through gritted teeth, maybe through a level of angst and anger, you could begin to pray for someone you have an inner hostility towards. I think it's the only thing left. Here's the prayer that I have in your bulletin, and it'll be on the screen. I want to read it to you. It's a prayer of blessing for my enemies. It says, Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless, and you can fill in one name or many names. Give them the life and salvation that comes from your son, Jesus their heart be yours. May their relationships flourish. May their joy be full. May their house be stable. May their needs be met. Father, bless them richly. I ask you to grant me the love I need that comes only from you. Grant me, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the ability to faithfully pray for the ones I hate and help me love like you have loved me. In the powerful name of Jesus. Take time with this prayer. Don't miss this opportunity to take a step in obedience of the command Jesus has given us.